Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen. I apologize for the short hiatus, but we're back, and I think you guys are all going to enjoy this book today. We have Rankings and the Reshaping of Higher Education, The Battle for World-Class Excellence. And this is the second edition just published this year, and this is from Palgrave Macmillan. And we have uh, Ellen Hazelcorn with us of Dublin Institute of Technology in Ireland. Uh, Ellen, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for contacting me. Absolutely. Well, maybe let's just get started. If you can tell us a little bit about your background and uh, maybe how this uh, book project came together as well. Well, um, okay. I was, uh, I've been at Dublin Institute of Technology for quite a while. I was working at the OECD at the time. And um, just in case everyone's not clear organization for economic cooperation development based in Paris. And I had done some other work with OECD on looking at research in new institutions. And um, about 2006, I started saying, this, this looks like an issue. This rankings, this seems to be going someplace. I think we need to have a look at what's happening. And so together with OECD and the International Association of Universities, which is based at UNESCO, uh, we put together this project. And basically, from their point of view, it was really hosting me and allowing me access to their membership, which is quite international. So I undertook a large study of um, university presidents, leaders, And then, with the help of the Institute of Higher Education Policy in D.C. in Washington, um, I then commenced a series of visits in 2008 to Germany, Australia, and Japan, looking at the impact of rankings. So, um, that's really where it began, and I'm really, I could say, at one point interested that it's this whole issue has continued to grow, much in the way in which I kind of thought it might. On the other hand, I could say I'm equally appalled that it has, has continued mm. to become such a dominant feature over higher education. Right, right. Well, maybe we can get into that a little bit. What, what really drew you to have a second edition? Like, what, what were sort of uh, the, maybe the biggest changes and sort of the... the maybe unexpected and expected changes that you saw um, that you included in this issue, this edition that maybe wasn't included in that previous edition? Well, I expect some of the push for the second edition came from the publisher. That's true. Um, I think it provided an opportunity to look 10 years over, you know, we could say largely a decade and have these initial trends continued or has there been change? Have we gotten used to rankings and we kind of lock them out or figure them in, but I, they're just in the background noise, or where do they feature? And clearly in the U.S. they have been a feature since the 80s, since the U.S. news took off. 
Um, and there's been quite a lot of work done um, looking at this issue. Okay. But it's, oh. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, maybe you could uh, explain to some of our listeners who might not be, you know, I think a lot of people, especially in America, are familiar with U.S. news, but maybe less so with uh, some of these other ones. So the uh, ARWU and Times uh, QS. Maybe can you get into a little bit about what uh, what those are and, and, and when those kind of came about and there. Sure, sure. I mean, the interesting thing is, um, so we have a, a history of rankings, and they have been around in the U.S., as we say, since the early part of the 19th century, or as I like to say, the previous century. But um, global rankings really took off starting in about 2003. And, and, you know, Shanghai's rankings are considered the ones that really as I would say, set the cat among the pigeons. And the reasons why all those take off are, are quite varied. But arguably, I would say that it was kind of inevitable. We use TripAdvisor. We look at other kinds of things when we travel. We live in a global world. We're increasingly looking at global comparisons. And that's really where we fit. So we're looking at... Um, the emergence in 2003 of the Shanghai uh, rankings, academic rankings of world universities, as you say, ARWU. Um, about the same time, um, shortly thereafter, Times Higher Education, which is basically a news a newspaper, the equivalent, arguably, of the Chronicle of Higher Ed in the UK, joined forces with QS, and they produced a ranking. Um, they've since split up and gone their own separate ways. We have Webometrics, which has come out of Spain, and we've had a, whole, a series of smaller ones that have come and gone over the last um, decade. And indeed, the whole rankings issue has fed um, more and more national-level rankings, more and more different variations of rankings, what I would call slicing and dicing the data to meet all kinds of commercial markets. And there are insatiable commercial markets. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, we need to look at this as a commercial venture and everything that every other commercial venture has. But what's significant really is the way in which these rankings um, have affected um, and impacted quite significantly, not just higher education institutions, but students, student choice, government thinking, and stakeholder uh, views, and so on, that it has led to um, making perhaps more prominent some of the issues that we thought were under the surface, making them more above the surface. Yeah, maybe if we could get into... You know, because you don't, there's obviously criticisms of these rankings, um, but the you know, as you mentioned, students, policymakers, uh, governments, obviously are using them. But w what really is going into the rankings? What they're all maybe doing a little bit different, tweaking a little bit. But how do we even quantify? Uh, what a, a good quote a good university is. What does that look like? Uh, how are we really measuring uh, uh, these rankings of these universities? Well, this is really the sixty-four thousand dollar question, <laughs> isn't it? Um, the issue of what constitutes quality and how you measure it is a bit of uh, put your finger in the air, feel the length, 
um, you know, what's it to you, you know, any kind of expression you could think of. And I think it's always, uh, always important to remember that the context for what is the best university depends on who's asking the question, why they're asking it, and, you know, what's, the end, what's their purpose. Um, it varies. Mm-hmm. I, an undergraduate student, am I an employer, am I a government seeking to do, you know, figure out where to put my money, it, it varies. But the simple answer is, is that there is no best institution. There is no best university. And um, there are many that appear to be highly rated, but we really have to spend a lot of time looking at what they're measuring. And so chapter two in the book spends a lot of time looking at the data about whether what's being measured is meaningful. And I expect that's a term I use a lot, whether or not we can measure lots of things, but is it meaningful? Is it telling us something that's of some significance about quality, mm-hmm. or are we just measuring something that is really a factor of wealth? Right. Whether socioeconomic wealth, inherited wealth, wealth by longevity. I mean, a lot of the institutions that rank at the very highest levels, take the Harvards or the, or the you know, Stanford is, is clearly newer, but it's not that much newer. They're all old. Oxford, Cambridge, they are old institutions, and you basically accumulate wealth. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah, I mean, I know I like that, that you know, phrasing that you use, meaningful. What is meaningful? I know ARWU's rankings connect with sort of uh, uh, Nobel Prize winners, correct? Or, um, and, and it's like, does that connect to you know, an undergraduate uh, degree in, in, you know, journalism or something like that. Uh, yes, I mean, exactly. But, I mean, aside from the fact that what, I mean, in fairness to Shanghai, they probably make no pretense that what they're trying to do is measure research capacity. Sure. And, but it is this, but the difficulty is, is that aside from that, there's an under, underlying assumption that higher education is simply about research intensity, where really higher education is about students and graduates, and the biggest number of students are undergrads. They're not PhD students, and they're not even master's students. It's the bachelor's student, who is the primary product, if you want to say, of higher education. That's really what it's about. Mm -hmm. Um, The second problem, and in fairness, to the people in Shanghai, and I've said this also in, in other things, is that the concept of research is a very narrow one. So we look at research in terms of the narrow end of the basic in STEM research in the main, but now BM, so it's really um, the biological sciences in the main, and we look at impact simply in terms of citation. So we don't look at societal impact, we don't look at see whether or not it has any um, impact in terms of of economic growth. We don't look at anything in terms of impact except what I've written and you've read. Mm -hmm. So it's a very narrow construct of knowledge and knowledge production, which in this day and age has been hugely disputed. Absolutely. We we did an interview a couple weeks, a couple months ago maybe, with uh, a Taiwanese scholar who was talking just about this same issue 
about social science uh, citation indexes and, and how important the administration places on that for, for professors' uh, capacity to be sort of, you know, what is a good professor? And, and you know, what didn't come into that was the idea of, uh, you know, are you a, a great professor in the classroom and, and things like that. So maybe can we kind of jump into that? Because you mentioned you, you, you did this research, you talked to these higher education professionals. What, what is, and I think you phrase it sort of the view from the inside of higher education, how do they react to this? How do they feel about this? I imagine there's sort of, uh, if, if you're ranked maybe very high, you, you can sort of run on that reputation. But if you sort of slip, I imagine there's a lot of pressure. I imagine it's very tough for these uh, higher education practitioners and administrators. Yeah, okay, so let's put that in some context. There's 18,000 higher education institutions in the world. I'm not talking about further education. I'm not talking about community colleges. I'm talking about higher education institutions. There's 18,000 of them. If we look at the top 100, we're talking about 0.05%. we look at the number of students attending these institutions, we're talking about 0.4%. So we're looking at a very small number of of students and institutions that are captured. However, we operate increasingly in a very competitive market. And the thing about higher ed, and the thing I I spend a lot of time talking about, um, certainly in the first half, is that we we need to use global rankings not as both a feature in themselves, which I know a lot of people focus on, but... I use it as a lens to look at what's happening in terms of the political economy of of higher education and political economy of knowledge. And um, we're really looking at the way in which higher education is is both a beacon and a measure of of, um, international and national competitiveness. It's an an incredibly important uh, magnet for mobile capital and talent. Most developed countries and increasingly developing countries are facing and will be facing um, a demographic um, challenge in the way forward. It's not just in terms of paying for my pension, but it's in terms of knowledge-intensive economies rely on having sufficient smart people to drive it. We don't have enough people. That's a fundamental. The U.S. relied predominantly on imported smart people in its graduates who stay and bringing in talent. Um, so the rankings feature in this because they are a driver of this and they are also a measure of this. And so when we look at the higher education institutions and how do they react, well, it's a very complex set of pictures. Um, institutions want to be attractive. They need to be attracted. They need to attract students. Um, many of what they what are measured in, whether it's rankings or national um, data collection outcomes, are based upon student achievement, or they're a byproduct of student achievement. Sure. And so, everyone is out attracting the best students. No one wants to attract the worst students. Everyone wants to attract the best students. Sure. So institutions are very much caught up in how they survive in this increasingly competitive environment. Students likewise want to and get 
a qualification, a credential that has value in a very mobile, flexible labor market. Um, what credential transfers and translates internationally? Right. We, I think All these factors are really, really, really important and are driving and are behind a lot of this as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you hit, hit on the head when you said, uh, you know, the students, right? It really goes back to the students. And in, in your following chapter, fourth chapter, you talk about student choice and how it factors into student choice and how recruiters are playing off, off these or using these rankings. And I think you, you had a stat that uh, students from higher socioeconomic status are going to be looking at these rankings and reputations much more than, than someone from sort of a, a lower um, socioeconomic status. So it becomes sort of like an arms race, uh, if you will, for credentials, not just for the institution, but then for the student, it's kind of just a, a large cycle. So you can, can you kind of talk about, um, you know, some of those factors that go into that and some of those decisions? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of, um, at varying times, I was just looking at some French data and, you know, they had a survey suggesting that rankings weren't very important for students. Um, but all the data I've seen and, uh, international data, um, and also country-based data tends to show that students pay attention to rankings. Now, it varies. Is it the only factor or is it part of the, part of the basket, if you want, of, of factors? That varies considerably, but certainly um, even if we have figures, and even in some of the early work done in, done in the U.S., where we're talking only 30% would come out and say, well, only 30% use rankings. 30% of students is a hell of a lot of students. Mm. And if those students are your top performers or your ones who are what I call free to choose, mm -hmm. i.e. Where, where finance is not the, the determining factor for them, right. then that's a large number. Absolutely. And in fact, the data shows that we're really talking about 60, 70% of students, if not more. Right. Well, I think also, and you kind of mentioned it before, but we're talking about these Im imported talents. I think a lot of international students, that is one of the main things that they look at. Uh, I work personally with a lot of Chinese students, and it's one of the first things that sort of come up. And of course, they're the largest portion of international students worldwide in the United States, certainly. And they are very attuned to the rankings, maybe more so probably more so than, than even domestic students, um, especially considering but, the internet. Yeah, oh. domestic students are probably less likely to be prone, at, certainly at the undergraduate level, and I divide the group students into four categories. Mm -hmm. But domestic undergraduate students tend, well, it depends on the market. Look, I'm from Chicago, so I'm familiar with the, with the U.S. scene, and uh, there are loads of uh, college guides and so on that we went through. Right. Uh, but there's also the, the basic intelligence that you know by growing up in the society. Mm -hmm. But international students rely, don't have that network, and they rely increasingly on these kinds of indicators to tell them something. The fact that it actually doesn't tell them anything about the educational quality is almost regardless mm -hmm. because... Uh, there's nothing else. And they, so then you ask, well, 
how do they do so well considering there's so much criticism? And the answer to that is there's nothing else. There, uh, the issue of defining, attributing, understanding quality in higher ed is probably one of the most complex issues around. Mm, absolutely. Maybe if we could uh, keep diving into this a little bit, but go into uh, the decisions by not the universities, not the students, but how about policymakers? How about states or uh, when I talk about state, like the nation state, you know, is really thinking about these kinds of things uh, and, you know, funneling money and making policy decisions on, potentially on these rankings, especially because, you know, they connect to these other ideas that we talked about. Can you maybe yeah. talk about some of those things? Sure, absolutely. And uh, you want to reference a book, so that's chapter five, and I look <laughs> at a whole rate of uh, policy choices that have been made. I expect the number one issue that emerged is uh, our concept, if you want to call it that, or concept strategy, that emerges is this notion of world class. Mm, right. Everyone now wants to be world class. Right, right. This concept, as I said, the battle for world-class excellence. Everyone, everything is world-class. You can't be world-class, you're a nobody. So every government needs to be world-class. And if we go back to this issue about the importance um, of being able to attract mobile capital and talent, then higher ed is a, is a, is a key anchor in your economy. It's part of the global gateway for your nation. It's, it's part and parcel of... You know, if you can't sell smart students to companies, uh, then you really have difficulties. If you're an emerging economy, if you're a brick, if you're like India and you're an emerging economy and you don't have institutions at the top, then you have to kind of ask yourself, well, how can we be an emerging and yet we don't have, have universities in the top? Right. So there have been a lot of moves perhaps starting, not, not even starting with the Germans, but starting before that with the Chinese, which is where the uh, Shanghai ranking fed into or fed, derived from, um, but what are called excellence initiatives. Yep. In either outspokenly called excellence initiatives, such as the German, or their derivatives of that. And we see lots of policies, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Europe, uh, whether it's in some of the U.S. states around the flagships, mm. and how many flagships. Um, Texas is a really interesting case in point. Um, look at, I, I think Kansas is, is kind of interesting, um, that are looking at um, the way in which their flagships are prominent institutions. What role do they play, and how can we drive up their selectivity, their elite status, and make them a beacon? Because your individual U.S. states are competing with each other as well as economic entities. Absolutely. Absolutely. If we could, maybe you could give us a sense of sort of uh, where are we going with this? How are these going to, how are these impacting? I mean, we're already seeing sort of, as you've already mentioned, sort of a reshaping of, of some of these uh, uh, the hierarchy potentially in state to state or if it's, you know, even within interstate as well. Um, so can you kind of talk about where we're going and, and uh, the sort of the, the new trends that, that might come along or, or what might come about from all this? Sure. I think, I mean, 
at the same time that we have all this going on, one of the underlying feeders is certainly the capacity of states. I mean, I mean, nation states sure. as well as individual U.S. states right. to actually uh, fund what I would call mass higher education. Now, I'm using mass in trial sense of universal. Well, let's call it mass higher education. Um, how do we fund that? How do we pay for it? Well, the U.S. has gone through a, a certain road um, in terms of tuition. But even so, in the, in the individual state universities, they're relatively inexpensive. And um, obviously, it depends on the state. But the ability of states to fund uh, public higher education as a population grows, even though we have a demographic, but the numbers of people demanding higher ed and the numbers of people we need to get through higher education increasingly grows, how do we pay for it? Mm -hmm. So what's happening in some of this reshaping and this excellence is an increasing stratification of, and hierarchicalization of higher education, um, a reshaping of these kinds of bands, if you want, the way the California system did, but on a grosser and, and grander scale, um, and increasing there's a view that there is a certain number that will be an elite set, and, everyone, and we are driving increasing elitism in institutions, which makes the you know the increasing so this increasing socioeconomic hierarchy because student performance is very much tied to socioeconomic uh, conditions, um, and then there are raised questions in terms of um, ownership of IP. So. The research that came out, or the data that came out recently, you know, looks at where is most of the IP, intellectual property, coming from? Well, tell me something we don't know. It's coming predominantly from the U.S. and a few other um, um, countries, and we're looking then at China. But it's these sort of, so where is knowledge? Who owns it? Who holds it? And holding and owning it is what drives knowledge-intensive economies. So we are really looking at the reshaping, not just of higher ed, but the way, the role that this plays in looking at um, this. Um, on a different level, we're also looking at wider questions about going back to quality. How do we measure it? Um, so I have this phrase, alternative rankings and alternative to rankings. Um, because we have government concerns over costs, we have um, student concerns over outcomes, we have public concerns over outcomes. Um, the idea that the academy can exist in its own world is no longer credible. Um, we had the example of the Obama ratings in the U.S. Uh, I'd say yet again another example of maybe um, the those opposed to of having won the battle, but I will tell you they will lose the war. The issue is out there. Um, and somewhere, somehow, unless we're involved in trying to shape those criteria, they will be shaped for us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. those are certainly a lot of things to, to think about. And it's certainly a fascinating uh, subject for us to uh, to really, where you know, where is it going? And sort of think about higher education, uh, and and we don't realize how how much impact these actually have. Um, 
but we're coming kind of to the end of the, of the podcast and the interview. Um, so if you could maybe give us a final word on, on the book and uh, also let us know, let, tell the audience, uh, what are you working on next? What can we expect? Okay, so, uh, gosh, well, I mean, the issue of rankings um, for the blessed minus continues to grow. Uh, we really do to move to another level of analysis, and I think that is around this whole issue of um, quality and other me- forms of uh, assessment. Um, there is obviously an argument, a uh, group of people would say, oh, no, no, this is all bad, we're marketizing and um, higher ed. Well, I'm afraid that was part of the game long ago. And I work as a policy advisor, so I work with reality as I, as I have it, not as I wish it to be, and try and come up with solutions to move forward. So um, anyway, so I'm working on this, and um, I'm working on another book on civic universities, which is looking at um, the changing shape of higher education with regard to their role in, mm. in society. And uh, this is based on case studies in Northern Europe in the main, oh, well. co-fitting that. And I have a couple of other things. And I basically spend my time doing um, international um, projects. Wow. That's very nice. That sounds fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll definitely look forward to uh, your fu- future publication, future work. And uh, But for now, we have this to look forward to and for this to read. So I want to encourage all my audience to check out Rankings and the Reshaping of Higher Education, the Battle for World-Class Excellence. Uh, and this is from Ellen Hazelcorn. So thank you very much, Ellen, for joining me today. Well, thank you. I'm deli- I'd be delighted to hear from anyone in the audience who wants to write me or look up um, Higher Education Policy Research Unit um, on the website and um, send me an email. Absolutely. We'll make sure to link that on our, on our webpage. Uh, but to all the audience out there, thank you for joining us, and I hope you learned something.